looking and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted so far. So Shane, why don't you come on up and let me pray for you. And pray for us, that our hearts would be open. God, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to hear your word this morning, to read, to hear it, to be part of your family. I want to thank you for Shane, thank you for speaking to him, thank you for the work that he's done, the willingness that, he's, that he has to share with us. Holy Spirit, we just pray for an anointing on him this morning, an anointing on him to share and an anointing on us to hear. God, open our ears, open the eyes of our hearts, and I pray that you would give Shane peace and, um, Lord, we want to... Yeah, Lord, we we'll lift him up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you, Andrew. Um, and thank you to the leadership team for this opportunity to speak to you guys uh, this morning. It's quite different being here uh, versus on the stage. I can hide behind my guitar and my mic stand and all that. Uh, it's very different. Um, but it's good. As uh, Andrew mentioned, in the lead up to Easter, we're doing a series on the way, the the way and the road of following Jesus. Um, Joel um, preached last week, and we're going to hear from Joel and Andrew again um, coming forward. Um, Joel reminded us or encouraged us last week in the lead up to Easter to read through the book of Luke. Uh, I wonder how that's going. Uh, for those who it's going good, well done. Um, for those who oh, are a bit average, um, okay, there's still room to improve. If you haven't started, uh, there is, I've got to hear, there's 15 days until Easter Sunday and there's 24 chapters. So it's very much still achievable, all right? So knock some out in the first couple of days and then, um, yeah, go for it. It'll be good as we explore Luke for you to have that basis to work off. So this Sunday, as we're um, chatting here, we're going to explore what it means um, to follow Jesus in humility. That's what we're looking at. And I had an experience this week where I uh, encountered some people who didn't really have a great understanding of humility from what I saw. Uh, for those of you who know, one of my part-time jobs, uh, I work as a soccer coach for Melbourne Victory. And me and sometimes Joel, we go to a school and we have to deliver a soccer clinic to primary school aged uh, kids often. And this week it was to a high school age. They were all year eights. Uh, that was new for me. I'd normally do primary school. They're all just in full of energy. But year eights are a little bit different. Um, quite different. <laughs> Anyone in year eight here? Oh, yes. Well done. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Good, good. Well, I learned two things from, from this experience. One, I learned that I'd completely forgotten what high school was like 
There was uh, lockers, like, remember lockers? There was, like, people carrying around textbooks, uh, diaries. Like, they'd pull out their diary and get forms out. And I'd be like, I completely forgot. So I learned that. Um, And I also learned for some of these kids, their whole world revolved around themselves. Everything they did was to try and impress others or to make themselves uh, look better. Um, We were playing games and there was guys that would just get the ball and just try and dribble through everyone and then kick it past like a girl in goals that would just do this. And then they go and celebrate and I was like, what's, what's going on? Um, this, is, this can't be humility. Um, and I was like, well, I'm preaching on this on Sunday. I could probably use this as, the, as my intro. So, um, Yeah, but in our society, we're often taught that uh, you are the most important person uh, in the world. Um, we go to school and we study so that you can get a good ATAR, so that you can go to a good uni, so that you can get a good job and you can earn a good salary and then you can get married and you can, it goes forward. And that's the road. There is merit to that and I'm on that journey as well. Um, But sometimes it's hard to do humility well in that kind of a world. And that's where this parable comes into play. Um, Jesus um, hits this on the head with this parable in Luke 18. We see two different characters. We have the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, It seems pretty straightforward, but if we actually want to put this into practice in our world that is so um, self-centered and focused on you, that's where it becomes challenging. So we're going to tackle that today. Um, if you're taking notes, we're going, to have, um, we're going to look at firstly the prayer of the Pharisee, secondly the prayer of the tax collector, and thirdly the redemption of the Savior. So let's go for it. Firstly, the prayer of the Pharisee. Uh, what's, what's a Pharisee? Who's a Pharisee? Uh, the Pharisees were the teachers of the law in that country, in that culture. Sorry, uh, They ran the synagogues. Uh, they were heavily involved in yeah their synagogues, and Jesus talks a lot with them and also against them uh, in his ministry. And it's pretty likely that this whole parable was addressed to a group of Pharisees that he was talking to. If you look in verse 9, uh, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, standard summary of a Pharisee in that culture. Uh, so we can assume that he's talking to Pharisees. And so what's he trying to teach them? What's he trying to teach them? He hits it on the head at the start of verse, uh, or beginning of verse uh, 11. He says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. That was the center of it. If there was a, if there was a ladder of this guy's priorities, you know, you have life and work and school and he was definitely at the top. His whole world uh, revolved around himself. Uh, if you look at his prayer, verse 11 and 12, um, if you've got your phones or Bibles, um, just see if you can count how many times he uses the word God in his prayer. Anyone see? Once, yeah? Once. And now count how many times he uses the word I or me or something like that. Anyone got it? Four. Yeah, nice. Good counting. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty clear that his whole 
world revolved around himself. Um, he asked for nothing. He confessed nothing in his prayer. And he received nothing from that prayer. He started with, God, I thank you. This is a good start. I hope some of us would start our prayers like that. And then he went downhill from there. Um, he says, thank you that I'm not like this person. Thank you that I'm so much better than this person and that person and that person. Isn't it true that sometimes how we pray and how we talk actually reflects what we value? Reflects what's central to our hearts and what's at the top of our priorities list. So if we care about our family, then we're going to pray for our family. If we have a, a friend who's in trouble and we value them, we're going to pray for that friend. Yeah, so it's pretty clear from this, this Pharisee's prayer that his whole world revolved around himself. That was, that was what he prayed. He loved himself. He loved what he did in the synagogue. He loved how he served and he wanted God to know about it. Now, it's pretty easy to, to rule out this Pharisee as just some self-centered guy who was like full of pride um, and just rule him out as, yeah, as, as the reading was being read, uh, two of the guys in front of me just like shook their heads like, what's this Pharisee doing? It's pretty easy to do that and just be like, you know, who is this Pharisee? What is he on about? Um, yeah, but if I wonder if we counted how many, how many times we use the word I in our prayers... How would that ratio look? Would it be kind of a four to one or one to one? Or um, I wonder how that would look. Would we start our prayers with God, I thank you, and then what happens after that? Do we do we thank God all about ourselves? What do our prayers look like? Because what we how we pray reflects what we value. In verse twelve, uh, the Pharisee talks up his deeds. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Uh, in that culture, that was more than the required uh, amount. You know, you, you only had to fast, I think, once a week or not even that. Um, so he was tithing. He was teaching people. He was serving in the synagogue. Um, he was fasting more than you were supposed to. And he was, doing, he was going over, over and above. So he's a solid Jew, right? He's, he's pretty good wrong his heart was in the wrong place and that's what jesus uh, exposes in this parable if you compare him to us we're also we're also serving in church uh, we're running programs we're getting here early to set up set up the sound equipment do this do that we might not be fasting twice a week but are we serving in church twice a week we're actually more like the pharisee than we think now, I hope we wouldn't pray like this Pharisee prayed. Um, but sometimes do we think like him? Is that in our thoughts? Maybe, oh, like I'm pretty good at serving. Or like, I was here early, I set up, can someone notice me or, you know, say thanks? Or what about, I, I thank you that I'm not like dot, dot, dot. I wonder if that's part of our thoughts. We sometimes think like this. I do sometimes. Because just like the, the Melbourne Victory School that I went and run the soccer clinic at, our schools are filled with selfish people. Our workplaces are filled with, 
with people trying to do their best and so they can work their way up in the ladder. Our society is filled with self-centered people, but, but as Christians, we shouldn't be the, uh, the center of our own worlds. If we are, if our, if our whole world revolves around ourselves, then we find ourselves in the Pharisees' camp. So it's pretty clear that we shouldn't be in this camp. That's the, that's the crux of the parable in the first part. Uh, so what are we striving for instead? If this is not the way, uh, the, not the way of following Jesus coming up to Easter, what is the way? And that's where Jesus introduces us to the tax collector in the coming verses. So Jesus, in this parable, he almost sets the Pharisee and the tax collector as complete opposites from one another. And he does that intentionally. He sets up the Pharisee, uh, probably up the front, projecting his voice out to, to God or to the others that are there. And the tax collector stood at a distance, and I imagine him praying very quietly his prayer. The Pharisee was proud of himself and his achievements, and the tax collector couldn't even look up to heaven. Um, if you see that in verse 13. The Pharisee uses 33 words in his prayer. The tax collector only uses seven. And I think Jesus sets this up um, as opposites deliberately. Saying this is what shouldn't be happening. And on the complete other side, this is the way to go. So what do we know about tax collectors in that society? Uh, we know that they were corrupt. Okay? They often overcharged and essentially they ripped people off. So they would come and instead of taking $10 that they owed for taxes, they'd be like, oh, excuse me, uh, you need $20. And they'd pocket the 10 and then they'd give the other 10 um, to where they needed it to go. And society actually hated these tax collectors. They were um, a lower class in society and... Yeah, society wasn't a big fan of them. They often weren't allowed in temples. The Jews weren't fans of them either. Um, but somehow in this parable, the, the tax collector finds himself in the temple. Um, he probably saw his sin. He probably saw his corruptness. And he wanted to go to the temple to try and you know, make up for that or pray about that or something like that. We also know that the tax collector was filled with sorrow over his sin. If you look at verse 13, he, he beat his breast. You know, these ones. Um, and, and that was an intense sign of sorrow in that culture. We hear of people doing this only two other times in Scripture. Uh, one of them was a reference in Isaiah 30, uh, 32. And the other is a few chapters on in Luke 23, verse 48. And a few chapters on in the book of Luke is where, is where Jesus actually dies on the cross. And it says the people returned home beating their breasts. So that's where that phrase comes from. And Jesus intentionally chooses that to teach us that the tax collector was extremely sorrowful for his sins. He was mourning. He was mourning over his sins, and he was like extremely convicted over his sins. 
As a church, we're coming off a series in Jonah. We've done, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we finished that series. We heard from a few of um, us about Jonah and what that looks like. Um, what a great series, by the way, to, to have a look at Jonah and read it and go, oh yeah, that, that actually looks like our world today. Um, as a life group, we were, we were going over this study a few weeks ago and, and we found something. We found something um, that we hadn't seen before, and I wanted to mention that today. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, can you go to Jonah chapter 3, please? Jonah 3. You can use the contents if you like. It's hard to find. If you've got a phone, you're lucky. So Jonah 3, how are we going? I'm seeing Micah, I'm seeing, (laughs) oh good. Got it? All right, Jonah 3, starting from verse 4. So Jonah just comes into Nineveh, and it says, On the first day Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And I'll finish it off. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So, in Jonah 3, the Ninevites heard Jonah's words. They heard him and they believed God about what he was saying. And immediately they actioned some things. So what did they do? In verse 5, they declared a fast and they put on sackcloth. Yeah, what's, what's sackcloth? What's sackcloth? It was a garment associated with mourning. Throughout the Old Testament, you see many examples of this. People were really uh, sorrowful or they were mourning and they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. That's a common phrase we hear. And that's something they would do when they're mourning and they're sorrowful. Okay, so now that we know that, let's look at the king in verse 6. When the king heard this, what does it say? He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat down in the dust. That's like, that's like a complete reversal of everything that was beforehand. right? So he was sitting on his throne. He arose, he stood up, and he removed his robes. And then he covered himself with sackcloth and then he sat back down. It's like a complete reversal of everything. Basically, what he's, what he's thinking, what he's saying is, I've been convicted of my sin and I can't. I just can't stay the same. I have to do something. I have to do something. I have to change because I can't stay like this. 
So what he does here, there were physical, physical actions that actually helped remind him of his spiritual condition. The sackcloth and the fasting and the decree he, he went on and um, proclaimed to his country, that was all there to help the Ninevites feel the weight of their sin. And it actually allowed them to truly mourn over it and do these actions so that they would feel, feel the weight of it. And so we read this in our life group. And our thought, our thought was maybe, maybe we need the Holy Spirit to provide us with some, with some sackcloth. Maybe we need to come up with a garment that actually, or something that helps us recognize, oh, actually, like that's, that's not that good. That's not that good at all. Because we don't do that well in our, in our society. We don't often um, think about sin and think about brokenness well. We project good images of ourselves and we don't, we don't do recognition of sin well. So maybe we need some sackcloth. Maybe if you could think back to the point of your life where God really convicted you of sin and where he called you to a better life, I wonder, did you have a sackcloth moment? Did you have a moment where you went, oh, actually, like that's not good and I'm, I'm quite ashamed and I'm quite sorrowful over my brokenness? Have you, have you beat your breast over, over your brokenness like this tax collector did? When I ask you, do you do you know your sin? Do you know your brokenness? Not just in past, but where we know that we live in in a kind of conflict between two worlds, between this world and between heaven, and we we continue to struggle with sin. So I'm going to ask you, do do you know your sin, both in past and also the stuff that keeps coming up? Do you know it? On the other hand, maybe we've been sitting in sackcloth for too long. Maybe we're, we're wallowing in our sin and we actually need to muster up the courage to come before God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because there's no point just being sorrowful for our sin and just, just wallowing in that. We need to get down on our knees and ask God to have mercy on us. If that's you today, if that's you who, who needs to come before God, I want to encourage you to come. To come before God in complete humility, just like this tax collector. You don't have to, you don't have to wait until you've got it all together to come before God. Because if you do, you'll be, you'll be waiting forever. Because it won't come together. The only way it comes together is if God brings it together. It comes together when you come, when you come to God. And he brings it together. So how does, this, how does this relate to humility? Well, if you truly know your sin, if you truly know where you, where you came from and what God has saved you from, you just can't be prideful. You, you can't. When you, when you actually see it for yourself, you can't. If you know that God has pulled you out of the bottom of a pit, and you, you just can't be the centerpiece of your world. He has to be he has to be the focus. So humility comes from knowing where we've come from 
And who pulled us out of that place? Humility comes from knowing where we've come from and who pulled us out of that place. There's a guy named there's a guy named Fred Smith, and he has this quote. He says, humility, and I, I was going to put this up on the screens, but I couldn't, so you have to, you have to listen here. All right? Humility is not denying the power you have, but humility is admitting that the power comes through you and not from you. Catch that? So it's not denying the power you have, but it's admitting that the power comes through you and not from you. As an example, to try and help help understanding, um, let's imagine I was playing soccer and I scored like a ridiculously good goal. All right, it was really good, curled nicely, went in. After the game, some up, someone came up and and told me, "Hey man, like what a goal! Like loved it. You hit it clean. It went in perfect in the top corner. Awesome work." What do I say to that? If I say, oh, oh nah, it wasn't that, it wasn't that good. But did you see uh, this guy's goal? He scored it. Man, that was a good finish. Is that humility? I would say no, that's just deflecting a compliment. That's just not being able to take a compliment. And if we see that in view of this quote, that's, that's denying the power you have. That's saying, no, what I actually did wasn't good. That's denying that power. So what does it look like for us to actually respond to that situation in humility after this quote? He might be saying something like this. Yeah, thanks heaps. Uh, it came off pretty well, huh? But I would have never been able to do that if my dad didn't teach me how to kick in the backyard. Did you catch that? So it's saying that, and mum, and mum. Mum mom taught me a lot. I was going for the dad for the God, the God comparison, right? I was, I was, I was, I was. Yeah, so if we respond like that, we're not denying that the goal was good. The goal, the goal was good. But we're saying how we got to kick that goal was not from us. We were taught, we practiced, yeah, and, and my parents taught me how to kick in the same way. We're not denying our power, but we're saying God is the one who actually taught me how to do this. He's the one who's working through me, and he's the one that's allowing me to, to do this, to stand up like this rather than being sorrowful on the ground. You know, God, God, has, God is the one who has allowed this to happen. So the tax collector, here's a wonderful example of humility. He comes before God in complete humility. He knows he can't do anything to free himself from his sin, but he completely trusts that God is the one who can have mercy on him. And the best part is, if you keep reading the chapter, God does have mercy on him. He does. So, both the Pharisee and the tax collector pray. The parable lists their prayers. And then, in verse 14, it says, This man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. This is like the punchline. 
Yeah, he's talking to the Pharisees, and this is one of the lines that would have been like, oh, really? For them. Because often we, we read this parable and we focus on the Pharisees' prayer and the tax collector's prayer, and we want to be like the tax collector, but we miss that the tax collector was the one who went home justified. He was made right with God, and his brokenness was made whole again. And that should be hugely encouraging for us. We don't, need to, we don't need to stay in our sackcloth and put all that on in fear of coming before God. And we also don't need to do all these things like the Pharisee did and try and prove ourselves before God. God wants us, quite simply, to come before Him in our brokenness. He wants us to come and say, I don't, I don't have it all together. I really don't. But I trust that you can bring it together. And when we do, when we come before him in this humility, just like this parable, he will forgive and he will restore us. He will make us right. He will make us whole. And he actually wants to. That's another thing. He wants to redeem those tax collectors in our world who come to him in humility. He wants, he wants to do that. I believe he does. So we're coming up to Easter in a few weeks. We're coming up to Easter and that, over most things, everything, is where Jesus acted in complete humility to redeem us as broken people. Jesus is actually the perfect example of humility. Let me just sort this out here. So Jesus is the perfect example. He put his own desires to the side. And he submitted himself to the will of God. His dying on that cross is how he can actually offer us redemption and freedom. That's how he can do it. On that cross, he died for tax collectors. He died for them. Those guys who ripped people off in the temple courts, he died for them. On that cross, he also died for the Pharisees. Those were the people who were full of arrogance and pride. This parable doesn't actually mention it, but I believe he died, died for them. He just wants them to, to see that the, they needed saving. That's what he wanted them to see. He wants us. He wants us to see that we need saving. He wants us to see our brokenness. And then from that brokenness, he wants us to see how great his mercy is that has pulled us from that brokenness. Tim Keller is a great um, preacher and a great man. He says, another quote, you have to pay attention because it's not on the screen. He says, The more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. The more you see it, the more you see your brokenness, like the tax collector did, the more amazing God's grace appears to you. Because of that. So I want to encourage you today. Don't be afraid to pull out a bit of sackcloth every now and then. Don't be afraid to to actually stop and feel the weight of our sin every now and then. Because the more we see our sin, the more we see it, the more amazing the love of God becomes. 
in our view because he's redeemed us from that and that should excite us. So, in wrapping up, this road of following Jesus, this way that we're talking about in the lead up to Easter is one in Luke 18 where followers of Jesus come to him in complete humility. They come before him as broken people and trust him to redeem them from that. The parable finishes in verse 14, if you've got it there. It says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this was the real, the real punchline of this parable. There was a kind of a half punchline before it, where he says the tax collector went home justified. But this is the one that will get the Pharisees. He who exalts himself, you, will be humbled. <laughs> Talking to the Pharisees. That would have hit hard for them. Because the thing is, Jesus wants humble followers. He doesn't want followers who will get so caught up in themselves that they can't see God. He wants followers that can put themselves to the side and come to God in humility. That's what he wants. I don't want it to seem today like I'm telling you to be humble. Like that that doesn't work. You, You can't become humble by being told to become humble. That's not how it works. You can't even become humble by only taking yourself off the highest place in the priorities list. By putting yourself to the side, it won't work. But becoming humble is not just about removing yourself, but putting something or someone at that that top of the place. And who's that someone? It's got to be God. The only way you can become truly humble, true Christian humility is by letting God take that highest place in your life. And once you do that, everything will fall into place. Your school, your work, they'll fall into alignment under the top, whatever's at the top. It'll all fall into alignment as we allow God to be the centerpiece of our world. That's how we are to walk in humility, and that's where Jesus is calling us today. So I'd like to invite the music team up. You guys can come up. And we're going to sing a song uh, in response to this. Uh, The song we're going to sing says a lot about God in the words. And it doesn't say a lot about us. But there's a chorus. The chorus says this. It says, And I will fall at your feet. I will fall at your feet. And I will worship you here. This is, this is the chorus I imagine the tax collector singing as uh, he comes before God and God justifies him. I imagine the tax collector getting down and saying, I will fall at your feet and I will worship you here because of what you've done. May this be our response today. As we see the goodness of Jesus, as we see what he's pulled us from, may this be how we respond. We fall at his feet in humility and we say, it's not me, it, it's got to be you. And I want to worship you because of that. Yeah? So over to you. I invite you guys to stand as we as we sing.